If you have a Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2, and um, uh, I'm going to be looking at Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8. The letter of Colossians, Colossians is a letter from Paul to a church called Colossae or Colossae, and um, Paul had never visited that church, so it wasn't a church that he started, but it was a church that he had heard good things about, much like I just keep hearing good things about Watermark. So he spends the first part of this letter commending them for their faith and encouraging them to carry on in the faith, but Paul has also heard that there are false teachers among them. So starting in verse 6, he starts warning them that they need to guard themselves against this teaching. So look with me, if you would, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've revealed your plan for us in your word, that you've given us your son. Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would move through your word, that you would Give me the words and be a filter over my mouth to speak only what you give me. We thank you so much for the gospel and we pray that it would come alive in our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, I'm gonna start out telling you something that very few people know about me and it wasn't until last night that I realized it's funny that I'm telling you something that very few people know about me because Most of you don't know anything about me at all, so it's going to be the first thing that you know about me. Um, But I have really good friends who don't know that uh, for quite some time I was a Mormon. Did you know that? Tommy didn't know that. Um, And I wasn't raised in a Mormon home. I was was raised in an evangelical Christian home, and... uh, I was, you know, a good kid. I didn't smoke or drink, and I won the church Bible Bowl when I was like 13. And uh, I was kind of a dorky kid. Um, I I would see people wearing cool clothes, and I was like, I'm going to get those clothes. But it didn't ever occur to me that I needed to get a size that fit my body. So I was wearing like extra large T-shirts and. Like my clothes were always too big, and my hair was too big, and my teeth were too big, and I was just kind of a dork. So I, I didn't have a lot of luck with girls. So when, a, when I was a freshman in high school and a sophomore girl started talking to me, I was swept off my feet. She was a year older than me. She was six inches taller than me, and she was a Mormon. And at the time, I didn't know what a Mormon was, and she just said it meant she was a Christian, and I was like, hey, I'm a Christian too. That's cool. So we started hanging out, and after a few months, 
We were both quite convinced that we were meant to be together forever. But she called me up one day and she was crying. And she said that she could never marry me because I wasn't a Mormon. Because in Mormon doctrine, um, if two Mormons get married, they call it getting sealed. And they believe that if, if you're sealed, you're married for all eternity which is a really beautiful idea, if it were true. And at this point, I was facing what in psychology is called cognitive dissonance. We, we get cognitive dissonance when we have a strongly held belief, but we behave contrary to that belief. And to get rid of the dissonance, you either have to change what you believe, or you have to change what you're doing. So on one hand, I had this Orthodox Christian belief system, and on the other hand, I had a Mormon girl who liked me. And my desire to be loved by this girl was greater than my beliefs, so I chose to compromise what I believed. And I let myself be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And maybe... Probably you don't have a story quite that extreme, but I think most of us to some degree know what it means to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit because deep down we all really want to be liked and we all really want to be accepted. We all want to be seen as relevant. We want to be respected. But a lot of the time, faith in Jesus simply isn't congruent with these things. But it's something that we're all susceptible to. And Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And it's kind of a weird thing to say because it's like, make sure you don't die today or make sure you don't get a wreck when you're driving today. It's like, what can we really do about that? But I think he gives us the answer in verse 6. And I'll tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend most of the time today in verse 8. But the most important part is verse 6. It's the answer to how we see to it that no one takes us captive. Paul says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. He's not telling us some new crazy thing that we have to do. He's not telling us that we have to do anything. We simply stick with what we have. Um, I really like the verse that Nate shared with us um, from John, I think, 15.5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And the beautiful thing about remaining is it doesn't say, if you can get to me, it says simply, remain in me. And that's the idea here. Our human desires leave us susceptible to being taken captive, so we have to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. So Paul says... See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. And in Greek, I'm going there because I'm the seminary student. And that's my, my job. I have to go into Greek to make you think that I'm actually learning something. 
Um, <clears throat> but the Greek phrase that he uses here it would have been commonly used to refer to someone being kidnapped or to refer to cargo being stolen from a ship. So he's using it metaphorically, and he's saying we're taken captive or we're kidnapped, and the way it happens is philosophy and empty deceit. And the construction he uses here aren't saying, here are these two different ways that we're taken captive. He's equating them and saying philosophy is empty deceit. And I don't think what Paul's doing here is giving us a science is evil kind of speech because Paul appeals to philosophy in many of his epistles in defending the faith to non-Christians. All knowledge is from God, so there's nothing inherently evil and certainly nothing empty and deceitful about knowledge in and of itself. But here Paul is referring to systems of thought that are based on wisdom of the world rather than on Christ. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we know that true wisdom comes from God, but Paul is contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, Paul says, Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul's almost sarcastically referring to the gospel as folly or foolishness. And he's referring to the philosophy and the wisdom of the world as wisdom. And he's doing that here in Colossians also. And I don't think I have to tell you guys that in our culture, just as in Paul's culture, philosophy was kind of supreme and ours, science is supreme. And if we're going to prove anything, it's going to have to be verifiable through scientific method and rationalized through systems of logic. And this becomes problematic for Christians because there's no way that we can retest and observe Jesus' virgin birth or retest and observe Jesus calming the storm because these things only happen once and they're impossible to reproduce. It doesn't matter how good our apologetics are, at the end of the day, we can't prove the gospel to be true according to human philosophy. And that's precisely why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But the fact that Jesus was the only man to be born of a virgin, that he was the only human being to ever be given the authority to control the weather, it's something extraordinary. And that's why we first believed the gospel. I would be willing to bet that most of us who have put our faith in Christ didn't come to that conclusion because it made sense on paper or because of a good apologetic argument. That's why the second half of 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. When I was in fourth grade, uh, my Sunday school teacher 
told our class that if we had never doubted the Bible, a day would come that we would. And to be honest with you, as a little southern Christian redneck kid, that, that came across as pretty offensive to me, and I didn't even have a category for doubting the Bible because my parents had been telling me it was true since I was little, and I'd been praying for stuffed animals and squirrels since I was three. So doubting the Bible wasn't a problem for me, but my teacher was right. The day did come, and it came on September 11th, the September 11th. I couldn't pray that day. The reason I couldn't pray is I was going to a state university, I was minoring in religion, which was a horrible idea, and I was taking this class called Jesus of Nazareth, and my professor was a liberal universalist, and the main text for the class was written by this guy who claimed to be a Christian, but he also said that the gospel is just a bunch of folk tales. Jesus didn't know he was the Messiah. The miracles didn't really happen. And the resurrection wasn't a real physical resurrection. My professor and my classmates bought into it wholeheartedly because he gave a really convincing argument for it. And in my class, I was the lone Christian standing for Jesus, standing for the scripture. And honestly, I didn't know what I was doing, and I looked like an idiot in there. I left class feeling like a fool every single day, and it just kept wearing me down to the point that I just thought, this guy's degrees I've never even heard of, and I haven't even gotten my bachelor degree yet. I don't know anything. But I thought, if this is the Jesus that he believes in, and the Jesus that I've always known, the Jesus of the Bible isn't true, I just can't, I can't buy any of it. And so on September 11th, when fear and uncertainty were crawling across the globe and it seemed like even atheists were praying, I couldn't pray because I was so scared that I might be praying to the wrong deity. Well, God got me through that. He carried me through largely with the verses that I'm sharing with you today. Colossians 2, verses 8, and the first chapter in 1 Corinthians. And it brought me a lot of comfort to know that God rejoices in the folly that's preached. He himself used foolishness to make the wisdom of the world foolish. And when I realized that, all of a sudden, I didn't care if I looked foolish to my classmates. In John 15, 19, Jesus told his disciples, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. And this is where the the prosperity gospel breaks down. Because Jesus never promised us that we're going to be popular or liked or accepted 
He told us that in advance. He didn't come preaching a new philosophy or a way to get to the truth. He said, I am the truth. I guess um, what I want to ask you guys today is in what ways are you being taken captive by philosophy? In what ways are we attempting to dodge looking foolish in the eyes of the world? It's subtle and it trickles down through our culture. And sometimes it's just little um, incongruent things like we call ourselves Christians, but when we think about our spouses, we think things like, that's not my problem. She just needs to deal with that. I don't have time for that. Some of us Some of us can't reconcile the way that we want to live, the way that we're choosing to live, with how Scripture says that we want to live, and so we've just stopped reading it. We convince ourselves that it's an antiquated book with errors in it, and it was written for people 2,000 years ago. Give me Jesus, but you keep the Bible. Some of us here are so overwhelmed with the evil and the suffering in our world that we try to conceive of a loving God, an all-knowing God, and we just can't buy it anymore. But I just want to tell you that the evil that's all around us is the evil that nailed Jesus to the cross. It's the suffering and the confusion and the pain of this world that Jesus died for. But he didn't just die. He rose. He rose as a foretaste for the day when he will redeem all things, when he'll eradicate suffering and pain and hopelessness and confusion, and he'll make everything right. That's the gospel that we first believed in That's the gospel that I want to commend to you guys. I really think that that's what Paul is talking about when he says, as you received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. So he gives us the heading of philosophy and empty deceit, and under those he says that they are according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. And I'm not going to spend too much time on the elemental spirits, but I want you to know what he's talking about. He's again borrowing the language of his opponents. Um, Paul never names the false teachers in the Colossian church, but from all the internal evidence, it's most likely that he was talking about Gnostics. And if you don't know what that means, it's not super important right now, except to know that they use the term elemental spirits because they believed there was God, which wasn't even really the God that we believe in. And then under God, there was this lesser God who created the earth. And under that, there's these lesser deities. 
And Paul spends a great deal of time in Colossians demonstrating that Jesus alone is divine and that he's victorious over all of the demonic forces. And Paul elsewhere equates these lesser spirits with demons. So really what he's saying is undergirding the deceptive philosophy is human nature and demonic forces. Human tradition, frankly, is a freaking pain in the neck because it sneaks in and it infiltrates our culture, the way we think, the way we act. Um, I'm going off my map for a second, so I hope that I'll be able to get back on without tacking 15 minutes onto this sermon. Um, But Brandy and I were talking this morning about um, these like meth towns in the Midwest where it's like basically you're born and there's nothing but cornfields around you and your grandfather was a farmer and your dad was a farmer and you know that you're going to be a farmer and so it's like what's the point of graduating from high school because what good is you know trigonometry going to do when I'm a farmer and I'm never going to get out of this crap town so I'm just going to do meth um my band several years ago played in this town in northern Arkansas that had like a 17% graduation rate. And of the girls who graduated from high school, it was like 67% of them were either pregnant or had already had a baby. And uh, it just occurred to me that all of these kids felt stuck because they had been lied to And they had been told that they could never do anything of any worth because they weren't old enough and they weren't smart enough. They weren't affluent enough. They weren't in the right part of the country. They didn't have the right upbringing. And it's lies. It's human tradition. It's human tradition that makes this a, you know, male-dominated society. Um, I don't know. It, it gets under my skin, and I just, if, if I can speak anything to you this morning, I want you to know that God created us with passions and desires meant to glorify Him. And I think He challenges us and calls us to dream bigger than human tradition tells us that we can. In the context of the church, human tradition usually plays out like this. It takes something good, an aspect of the gospel, and blows it up and distorts it and overshadows the rest of the gospel. And so you have different groups of people saying, gospel is missions, Gospel is speaking in tongues. Gospel is putting weird billboards about hell on the side of the road. And you have all these different things, and some of them are good, but when we let it overshadow the rest of the gospel, we're really diminishing it to something, and we're, we're diminishing the richness of the gospel because the gospel is far-reaching. Everything that the fall affects, 
Not just that we're sinful, not just that we die, but the fact that business is corrupt, marriage is difficult, education is difficult. Jesus died to redeem all things, not just billboards. This dichotomy is set up good in the, in the parable of the prodigal son because uh, you've got the father and then the, the younger son takes what the father's given him and he just kind of throws it away because he doesn't appreciate it. The older son is so consumed with being a good son that he can't even enjoy what his father has given him. And these are the two extremes that human tradition usually leads to. And I'm going to give a theological term to each just, just so that I don't have to like say that whole sentence when I refer to them. Um, the rule-keeping types, that's moralism. The people who don't like the rules and overemphasize grace, I don't know if it's possible to overemphasize grace, but if you follow my meaning, overemphasize grace... That's called antinomianism, which is not a household term, and I understand that. And I'll just break it down for you real quick. It's something that Martin Luther made up, but basically anti, against, namos means law. Antinomianism or antinomians are against the law. Does that make sense? And uh, I don't think most people set out to be antinomians. They don't necessarily realize that's what they're doing. Um, but we, we start with verses um, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is a beautiful verse. This is so central to the gospel. The fact that God did the work, we don't have to earn it. This is so true. But we can take that and distort it and blow grace out of proportion and let it overshadow all the points in scripture that point to our responsibility to do good works and to be obedient to God's commands. What begins in grace is taken to an extreme and really rejects grace because at the heart of it, antinomians see all of these commands and all these charges to do good works and it just seems oppressive and overwhelming and quite frankly, the antinomian is afraid they can't do it and I just want to say, none of us can None of us can. None of us can keep the law. None of us do good works. I mean, we do sometimes, but none of us do it all the time. And that's exactly the point of grace. God knows that we don't do it. That's why there is grace. If you read the next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created in Christ for good works so that we should walk in them just like Paul tells us we should walk in Christ. 
John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But we can let the pendulum swing the other way and we fixate on the commandments of God and let that overshadow the grace of God. I can speak knowledgeably of this camp because it's the camp that I most often land in. And this is moralism. It focuses far more on what we do than what God has done for us. And at the heart of it, it's really some form of Christian karma. We think if we do enough good that God's gonna bless us, and if we don't do enough good, God's going to be angry at us. Um, so as Tommy said, I, I used to be in a band, and we, we toured a lot. And I um, played drums with a headset mic strapped to my face. And um, so I was the one who spoke most often. And we made a point to not just sing songs, but to talk about the gospel. And so I felt like I had to bring my A game, you know? And I heard someone talk about this verse, Psalm 119.11, which says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I thought, that's, that's really good. So I should start memorizing scripture, and I should start reading the Bible more. So I did. I started making sure that I would read the Bible for an hour or two in the van every day. And I started making note cards with all my memory verses. And as I started memorizing more and more scripture, it took me longer to get through my note cards. And inevitably, a day would come where I woke up in Tampa and I was going to Orlando, which is not a long drive. And it was my turn to drive. So I didn't get to do my three hours of reading my Bible and memorizing scripture in the van. And then I show up to the venue and I'm like, oh no, we're playing first tonight. And I honestly would be so been out of shape that I hadn't kept these commandments that I would think, God's angry with me right now. God's ashamed of me. And God's certainly not going to bless anything that I play or say tonight because I didn't run through my flashcards in the van. And it sounds ridiculous, but that's, that's what we do. We take the commands of God, we try to put them on other people, we feel superior to people who can't keep them, and then... If that's not enough, we start adding these other commands that aren't even there. And the thing is, God didn't tell me to do those things. And God never told me that his love for me was contingent on my performance. The deception of human tradition is that it subtly tells us that the gospel is just not that important. If we're antinomians, it says Jesus died and rose again so that you can do exactly what you are already doing. And if we're moralists, it says that Jesus died and rose again for no reason at all because you're so good at keeping the rules, you don't really need it. 
I want to encourage you to think through which of these camps that you land in. And probably as I'm talking about it, you already know. Um, Needless to say, I hope needless to say, I'm not still a Mormon, Um, which is good news for Tommy. Um, But here's how it went down. I was in high school, and I decided that I wanted to start exploring Mormonism. So I started talking to missionaries. I started going to the Mormon church. And uh, Mormons believe in the King James Version of the Bible with a few of their amendments. Uh, But they also have the Book of Mormon. And so I thought, well, hey, I've got like 15 or 16 years of Bible, so I'm going to start reading the Book of Mormon exclusively so I can catch up and make up for lost time. When I started doing that, um, I was treated very badly by my family and by the church I had grown up in. I lost a lot of my friends. I would come home from school and find literature on my bed about how Mormons are going to hell. I had people talking behind my back. I even got a packet of mean letters from my youth group. And none of them knew how to spell Mormon, by the way. (laughs) Um, You can't join the Mormon church without your parents' consent until you're 18 years old. I turned 18 my senior year in high school, and I got baptized into the Mormon church. And three days later, the girl that I did this for, her and her family moved to Reno, Nevada. So I was left alone. Within a year, she was engaged to someone else. I graduated high school and I went off to college and I still kept going to a Mormon church I was heartbroken, I'd lost my friends, the girl that I did this for was marrying some other dude, and the reason I kept doing it is partially because I wanted to believe, and I thought if I kept diving in, I would, it would click, so I started getting more involved, I got ordained to the Aaronic Priesthood, um, And I signed up for a two-year mission. In January of my freshman year in college, I decided that I would start reading the Bible again. And I started in the New Testament. So I started in Matthew. And I got to Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, there's a group of people who come up to Jesus and they're trying to trap him in a question and make him look stupid because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they started asking him questions about marriage and the resurrection. And Jesus said, in the resurrection, you will neither be married nor given in marriage. 
the very idea that made me make that leap was refuted straight from Jesus' mouth in Scripture. And if that were not dramatic enough, if I had gone to church one more Sunday, I would have been locked into a two-year mission. I would have been ordained to another priesthood. And it's so intense, it's like, it's like you know, hazing for a fraternity times 20. And I'd probably still be doing that. And I want to tell you that um, there was something really, really liberating about seeing that I'd been taken captive, about seeing an answer for all the dissonance that I had in my heart and in my head. And I'm not saying this for the point of hyperbole for a sermon illustration. Telling my parents and my friends and my church that I was wrong and that I had been taken captive was the hardest thing I have ever had to do. Having to face the people who wanted to say I told you so and I knew you just did it for the girl and face the people who had said horrible things about me behind my back, that was really, really hard. But greater than all that, I have never felt such freedom. I really mean it. And I don't know that many of you. I don't know your story. I don't know if this is just um, a cool testimony for you or if some of this hits home for you. Maybe you've been taken captive in a subtle way. Maybe you've gotten from A to Z and never even saw when you went from A to B and you're like, I don't even know what to do. And I want to tell you, it's costly. It's costly to admit that you're wrong. It's, it can hurt you. It can hurt people around you. And honestly, it can make you look like a fool. But I want you to know that the whole time I was doing that, the whole time that I belonged to what a lot of people would call a cult, whether I was walking with Jesus or not, Jesus was walking with me. I'm not lying when I tell you that the last thing that I prayed every night was God, please show me the truth. Please show me the truth, because I was hurting. There's a verse, Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 33, I think it's verse six, it says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you don't know. And I just wanna tell you guys that the gospel outside of these doors is foolishness. And you may not have the answers to make it make sense on paper, but it's worth so much more than being liked.
There's nothing that separates us from the love of Christ, and that's the good news of the gospel. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for the myriad ways that you show us your love. Thank you so much for sunshine and new life and food and drink and tangible reminders that you are our provider. Thank you so much for the deep truths of the gospel. Thank you so much for sending your son to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve. Thank you so much for the resurrection and the promise of the redemption of all things. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and for myself. Show us our hearts. Show us the ways in which we allow philosophy and empty deceit to take us captive. And remind us of the glorious truth of Jesus Christ the Lord that we received and help us to walk in it. I pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.